Even before Trump, press freedom has been under attack from those in power who wish to conceal their misdeeds from the public, war crimes, mass surveillance, and political corruption. Although a sometimes controversial figure on the left, Glenn's work has been instrumental in uncovering what goes on beyond the veil of wealth and power in not one, but two countries, the United States and Brazil. In today's episode, we talk about updates regarding Julian Assange and Edward Snowden and the massive U.S. spying program that Snowden revealed and which Glenn helped to publish, U.S. mainstream media coverage of Trump and journalistic integrity, Glenn's work in Bolsonaro's Brazil, and more. This interview was recorded on September 8th, so some events, especially the Assange extradition hearing, may have significantly changed by then. If you like this interview and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash adampod and become a patron for exclusive content, including weekly news updates. All right, here's Glenn Greenwald. Enjoy. We're recording this on the 8th of September, so the events of yesterday and this week will have probably changed significantly by the time this comes out. But um, yesterday, there was, of course, the extradition hearing of Julian Assange, um, where he faces 175 years in prison for publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks about war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. We also had the Snowden um, NSA uh, hearing or rather the NSA spying that uh, the Ninth District Court of Appeals ruled that what the government did was uh, unconstitutional. Um, so those are two events, Glenn, that kind of have great implications for not just press freedom, but mass surveillance and civil liberties. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the hearing yesterday, because trying to follow it on Twitter was really like Kafka-esque. Like, I'm not sure what exactly is going on. I was wondering if you could give us some updates about that. Sure. So I think there's a lot of confusion about anything involving Julian because there's been so many moving parts to his story over the last seven or eight years. There was obviously the original charges by two women in Sweden that he sexually assaulted them. In essence, this sex began consensually, but he then ended up um, not using a condom against their wishes. So people sometimes think that perhaps um this is about that but in reality the swedish prosecutors have closed those cases um essentially because they were incapable of investigating because he sought asylum in the ecuadorian embassy not to hide from that investigation but in order to ask the swedish authorities to guarantee that if he went to sweden to confront those accusations which he was totally willing to do that they wouldn't use that as a pretext to then send him to the united states to face national security and espionage charges for in connection with the publishing of the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs and the diplomatic cables. And everybody at the time said, oh, that's paranoia. He's just concocting an excuse. And yet here we are, seven years later, the U.S. government has indicted him for exactly that. So those fears were well-founded all along. And he never went to Sweden because the Swedish government never would offer that promise. So the Ecuadorian said, well, we're going to protect his human rights and give him asylum. Um, so it has nothing to do with the Sweden charges. And then in, 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 uh, 2019, uh, Ecuador withdrew its asylum, which enabled the British police to go in and arrest him. And the only charge that he faced in the UK was one of bail jumping where he was supposed to go to court in 2011 over Sweden's attempt to extradite him. But instead of going to court, he went to the Ecuadorian embassy to obtain asylum. Um, 
and so was guilty of bail jumping in the eyes of the British authorities. He was tried for that, found guilty, and he was sentenced to a year, and he served the year in prison. So he served a year in a British prison, a very harsh, high-security British prison that's used for, like, terrorist suspects and um, serial murderers and rapists. It's a, a notorious prison called Belmarsh. Um, so that's over as well. He served his time for this bail jumping. So the only remaining charge that is pendant is one that the Trump administration filed that alleges that he was guilty of, is guilty of a variety of crimes, not, they say, because he published classified material, but because he worked with his source, Chelsea Manning, and did more than just passively receive the documents. He actually encouraged her or helped her to cover her tracks by, for instance, trying to help her crack a password that it would have enabled her to go back into the system after she had already gotten the documents under the cover of anonymity. And the re and, and interestingly, the Obama administration really wanted to prosecute WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. That was when those documents were published in 2011, 2010. And the Obama administration concluded that there was no way to prosecute Julian Assange without endangering press freedom severely because how do you prosecute exactly. Julian for publishing secret classified information when the New York Times and the Guardian and the Washington Post do that all the time. In fact, they publish those same documents. Exactly. So the Trump administration comes in and is obsessed with it, with Mike Pompeo, Jeff Sessions, and they concoct this theory that he worked with his source to do it. And the reason it's so dangerous to press freedom is because journalists work with their sources all the time um, mm -hmm. in order to help them evade detection. That's not just the right of a journalist, but the duty. So that's what these proceedings are. It's an attempt um, on the part of the United States to say that they have a right to extradite Julian Assange from the UK to U the US to stand trial. And then the defense attorneys for Assange are saying that this is really just a politically motivated crime, which mm. is exempt from extradition. But the judge is very pro-government, anti-Assange, clearly biased. Every ruling signals she's going to rule against him. So it's highly likely that he'll, at this, least at this level, lose his legal challenge against the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. I want to I ask about the Espionage Act really quick, because that is the crux of this whole thing. Um, in many cases since then, where it's been used before to suppress political dissent from radicals like Eugene Debs and Emma Goldman. But more recently, we've seen this, especially during the Obama administration, it's been used to target whistleblowers um, and prevent them at all from talking about the public benefit of the leak or their motivations at all. Um, why is this so, again, why is this so unprecedented as from before where it was it was used to, you know, suppress political dissent or I guess discourage any sort of um, foreign interference? Yeah, I mean, the, the context, the historical context that you included is crucial and is often overlooked, which is that it's called the Espionage Act of 1917 because it was enacted by an authoritarian president, Woodrow Wilson, with the specific intention of criminalizing dissent against the administration generally, but specifically against the U.S. role in World War I and was used almost exclusively against communists and socialists at the time, like Eugene Debs, Emma Goldman, and, and, and dozens of others. So it was born of, of kind of despotic impulses and was designed to be repressive. And it kind of sat on the books for a long time. It was rarely used um, because the, uh, uh, the constitutionality has always been in doubt. One of the few times that it was used was when Daniel Ellsberg in 1971 leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times and the Washington Post, 
he was charged by the Nixon administration with violations of the Espionage Act um, because the Nixon administration tried to concoct this theory that Ellsberg wasn't just a concerned citizen blowing the whistle, that he was actually a spy working for the Kremlin. Probably sounds familiar mm. to the modern-day ear. Um, and he probably yeah. would have spent his life in prison um, had it not been for the fact that the Nixon administration engaged in serious misconduct by breaking into the office of his psychoanalyst to try and dig up psychosexual dirt about him to discredit him and got mm. caught. Um, but the reason it was so pernicious and everybody on the left and even establishment liberals at the time said it was so pernicious was because whatever you thought about what Ellsberg did, did it wasn't espionage, right? Espionage is when you work in service of a foreign government against your own government by passing them secret information, by selling information that's classic espionage, giving information that the New York Times and the Washington Post decide is in the public interest is not espionage. Um, but the reason why yeah. they want to use that law, as you alluded to correctly, is because under this law, and this is what makes it so repressive, is that most laws, if I, like, let's say you're charged with a crime, you're charged with robbery or assault or even murder, you have the right as a defendant to go in and raise defenses. Like if you're charged with murder, you can go in and say, yes, I actually did shoot that person dead, but I was justified in doing it because they were attacking me. Or you're charged with stealing and you can raise a justification defense. Yes, I stole, but I did it because my mother was going to die because she has a terminal disease. I couldn't pay for the, we couldn't pay for the surgery. So I did it. Um, it's at least mitigated, if not justified. The Espionage Act is a strict liability crime. Under that law, it says if you pass classified information to people not authorized to receive it, as Julian Assange is alleged to have done, they're also charging Edward Snowden with that. They charged Daniel Ellsberg with that. It doesn't matter why you did it. There's no justification. You can't even, like, Ellsberg wanted to stand trial. He wanted to go into court and say, yes, I gave this to the New York Times. And the reason I did it was because the people had a right to know that their government was lying to them about the Vietnam War. He was barred by from doing that by the court. So when the U.S. government saw that, they said, wow, this is the perfect weapon. And it was the Obama administration that dredged this up and they used it against whistleblowers and sources, not just more times than all prior presidents combined since Woodrow Wilson, but three times more than all previous mm. presidents combined. They used it against Thomas Drake. They used it against almost every whistleblower. They converted whistleblowing at least at the low level. For high-level leakers like David Petraeus and various generals, Obama pardoned them, they got slapped on the wrist, but for low-level ones, they got charged with espionage. Um, and that's why this prosecution of Assange is so dangerous because they're essentially saying that if you're a journalist and you work with your source and help your source cover their tracks, as the New York Times, the Washington Post, everyone does, um, you're now guilty of espionage. Yeah. And I think that's that's something that people have to realize, right, is that for all of Trump's draconian tendencies and, you know, um, repressive ideas about the freedom of the press, like the architecture was there as well under Obama and he utilized it. Right. He gave Trump pretty much like a free pass. Right. Um, to the incent incent incentive to continue to use um, the Espionage Act to persecute anybody that criticizes him at this point, right? Um, and I also, I also wanted to turn to, I guess, the federal ruling on the NSA spying. Um, what do you think, now that a court has admitted that it may have been unconstitutional, that uh, people like James Clapper may have misleaded, straight up just lied to the public 
what are the implications does that have for um, Snowden? Do you think that maybe not under this presidency, but in a future presidency under a Biden administration? I mean, I, I can't even believe I'm saying that. But do you think the possibility for him at all to be pardoned is there at all or? No. Here's no. the thing. Like, I don't I mean, I think the only chance we have for a pardon is under Trump and Trump kind of like almost on his own raised the possibility of a pardon for Snowden twice now. Mm-hmm. The reason like in a in a like fair, principled, rational world, what you just the case you just laid out would lead to a pardon of Snowden or at least mm-hmm. a commutation of his sentence. Right. Which is Snowden revealed a program of spying, mass spying that the government enacted in the dark. Not even members of Congress knew they had done it. And it turned out to be illegal. Like the government was violating the constitutional rights of millions of people by spying on them indiscriminately, a court just ruled. And this was not the first court that ruled that. They didn't definitively rule it because of the posture of the case. They were just asking whether there was a likelihood that it was unconstitutional, and they said that it was. So how do you punish a person inside the government who discovers that the government is violating the constitutional rights of millions of people and then exposes that? Tells yeah. his fellow citizens that the government is doing that. You, you'd want to reward that person, not punish them. The problem is, obviously, Trump doesn't give the slightest shit about any of that. Trump's interest in, in pardoning Snowden to the extent that he has an interest is simply that Trump believes, not without reason, by the way, that what he thinks of as the deep state, which we're all supposed to say is like this crazy conspiracy, even though Dwight, Dwight Eisenhower actually warned about it. You know, yeah. years ago. Yeah, we'll get to that um, in a second. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he thinks that the the deep state was dedicated to the sabotaging his first his campaign and then his presidency using the very spying machinery that Snowden unveiled. And he knows that Snowden's primary enemy are his enemies: mm-hmm. the NSA, the CIA, the FBI. Those are the ones who hate Snowden the most. So Trump's interest is purely his standard petty vindictive vendettas that he yeah which is fine like that's what we're going to try and use because i think snowden has been in exile for eight years now um and it's time for him to be able to come home and i don't really care what the if like it's the pure noble cause that leads him to be pardoned or some like you know cynical exploitative one but here's the thing that i think is like the, the reason why there's no chance under biden is because biden doesn't harbor those petty vendettas that i just described trump as having no and this is this is what's so important that i think you know to realize about all of this and about assange about chelsea manning um about the use of the espionage act is look this is one of the most important points to realize is that the government especially after 9/11 but before that but especially after 9/11 has basically created a wall of secrecy that's impenetrable, that obscures what it does. They One of the things that was you know shocking when I looked through the Snowden archive the first time was I saw that every single document was reflexively marked top secret, even like the most banal and mm. uninteresting documents, like people's lunch schedules, or it would say just, they just reflexively hide everything that they do. Mm. One of the only ways that we actually now find out about what they're doing is when people take their digital data and mass leak it. That's one of the few vulnerabilities these power centers have. Mm. It's really interesting. Like if you talk to Daniel Ellsberg in 1971, one of his main challenges was that when he wanted to leak the Pentagon Papers, how do you make a copy 
of 40,000, 70,000 top secret pages in 1971. You like, <laughs> yeah. go to the, the, the local Walgreens with a huge bag of nickels. Yeah, stand in front of the Xerox like machine. 50 hours doing it. Yeah. 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 Like you're not going to get caught. That was a big challenge for him. Whereas when Chelsea Manning downloaded those gigabytes of information, she did it in like 20 minutes while listening to a Lady Gaga song to hide what she was doing. <laughs> So the fact that all this information is stored digitally is a huge vulnerability for these power centers, including the U.S. government. They know they can't stop it. Just, there's too many people with access to it. It's too easy to just take. So what they're thinking is, how do we prevent this from happening? And the only answer they have is to destroy the lives of anybody who does it. So yeah, that just, if you want to be the next... People, people. Yeah, like scare the shit out of them. A climate yeah. of intimidation. So that's why they tortured Chelsea Manning for eight years, even though she obviously had no more access to classified information. It's why they're upset. They can't let Snowden come home to like a hero's parade because it'll incentivize new people to do it. So the chances that Joe Biden is going to confront the CIA and the NSA with all those national security ghouls he's about to empower and bring in with him <laughs> is literally zero. Um, the only chance is to capitalize on Trump's bizarre personality quirks. Yeah. His his own need for to just piss off his enemies, like even if it's in the, the most like cynical like way. Right. Like, as you're saying, he knows that the people who hate Snowden are also the people who hate him. So just to piss him off. Right. Just to win points among his own base as well. Right. Like it would be feasible. But. Again, as you're saying, it would set a precedent that the United States government is never going to, you know, take course on, like, ever. Well, well, and also just, like, to add to that, it's like, yes, it is, you know, he wants to piss off his enemies. But also, there is an element of truth, I mean, to this worldview that Trump has about what he calls the deep state. And, like, mm -hmm. the, the stupid factions of the right, like Rush Limbaugh, think that I'm the one who invented the term deep state because I wrote an yeah. article in January of 2017 saying the deep state goes to war with the elected president. I was just using a term that's been around, you know, like political science scholarship for decades and mm -hmm. kind of like left-wing discourse, but like Rush Limbaugh never heard it. So he thinks I invented it and they're constantly <laughs> crediting me with inventing it. But the reality is Trump believes that the deep state has been trying to sabotage his presidency and before that his campaign. And it's kind of true. Yeah. So yeah. he, to the, the fact that it was Snowden who exposed the abuses of the deep state, which is the next time I go on Tucker Carlson to talk about this, which I hope is shortly mm -hmm. and can talk directly to Donald Trump is how I'm going to discuss it is why Trump should reward the person who exposed the abuses of the same people that he knows have been abusing their power against him. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I want to turn to something like, because I think what you're saying now, like a lot of people reflexively on the left, right? Anything that Trump does, it doesn't matter if it has a good outcome. Um, they hate him for it, right? And anyone who, like yourself, who would be trying to make a case to him on Fox News, on Tucker Carlson's show about why he should pardon Snowden, they think that's unconscionable for you to do that. But the, the fact of the matter is there are times when he's right, when he says something that's undeniable. And um, we saw that earlier this week where he talked about uh, piss liberals and never Trump was off in the mainstream media. We talked about the military industrial complex. Now, he didn't use those words, but what he said was that these generals, quote, they want to do nothing but fight wars so that all of those wonderful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy. Now, that's not true. I mean, that's not untrue. Sorry. 
that is completely true, right? We know that war profiteering, war is a racket. It's a thing. Yet you have commentators on CNN asking for proof of his comments, right? Why, why, why do you think that this is such like a mind fuck for people to kind of wrap their heads around? Let me ask you, like, how can you be not even on the left? How can you be even like a liberal, like someone even like in the sort of Nancy Pelosi kind of like uh, Ron Wyden, like that milieu, yeah, Chuck Chris Hayes, and like not instinctively know that, of course, it's true that Pentagon officials have a revolving door with the arms industry and are in bed with them. And one of the main reasons why endless war is a permanent view of the Pentagon is because of the profit that accrues to those industries. I mean, I remember really well when I started, started writing about politics, the, everybody knew that like one of the reasons why Dick Cheney wanted to go to war was to increase Halliburton stock, right? Like that was, that was just like a trope on the left. Back then we all knew that. Right. We all knew that it was not even controversial. And like, the other thing is, you know, I have to say, um, maybe like a month ago or six weeks ago, I spent literally 14 hours watching the House Armed Services Committee hearing because that was where, you know, of course, uh, constitutionally, any bills that provide for spending have to originate in the House. So military spending bills originate in that committee. And the House passed a $750 billion military budget, which is, you know, all the statistics, three times more than China more than the next 15 countries combined, 10 times more than Russia, the evil threat that was used to justify this budget. But the real action was on the amendments. And there were amendments that, for example, one amendment was designed to to deny funding for what Trump's plan was, which was to withdraw troops from Afghanistan by the end of the year. (laughs) Another plan was to deny funding for his plan to withdraw just a third of the troops, the NATO troops, stationed in Germany on the grounds that the original motive for their being there, which was to prevent Soviet incursion into Western Europe, no longer really is valid, given that the Soviet mm. Union no longer exists. Yeah. does not exist anymore. It's collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it was Trump who wanted to do that. Those are Trump plans. And the amendments to deny funding in the House passed because the majority of people on the Democratic side on that committee who are hawks joined with Liz Cheney and her hawkish faction in the Republican Party to block the anti-war left of like Ro Khanna and Tulsi Gabbard and a couple others who joined with the pro-Trump right, like Matt Gates, who was saying, mm. like, I think we ought to make America great again before we make Kandahar great again. Yeah. I don't think a great nation sends the next generation to a war that the first generation failed to fight. So if you look at the reality the underbelly of where things happen as opposed to like the top line cable news things or things you're allowed to say on Twitter. It just is true that Trump has this instinct. Yes. He's escalating bombing in like Syria and Iraq and he doesn't care about civilians being killed at all when it comes time to bomb what he considers to be terrorists. And he's savage and barbaric and a war criminal in that way. But it's also true that he has this instinct to not waste money, to bring Americans home, not to, want to like build up Afghanistan or keep troops in Germany. And who cares what the reason is? The arguments that he makes are true. Um, And I think it's morally grotesque to oppose it because Trump is the one saying it. Like it's the the mentality of a four-year-old. 
Yeah, no, it really is, right? I mean, what he, and what he's able to do, I think what the media has a hard time with is that he's able to pose two contradictions, two opposing ideas or contradictions at the same time, right? On the one hand, you can have his supporters that are like very nationalistic and very much support the troops. But when he talks, because it's true, when he talks about the military industrial complex, like that idea is also like, it's. It, I, don't, I wouldn't even say it's a cognitive, it is a cognitive dissonance, I guess, but it doesn't mean that the latter about the military industrial complex isn't true. And it pisses liberals off so much because they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to square that, right? I mean, I think that, you know, what what I find really interesting is how many people, how many of Trump supporters, liberals think and pundits think are going to switch sides just because he said something bad about the military. I don't think that they get it yet. And they're still operating on, I guess, pre-2016 political assumptions. Yeah, well, yes, I agree with you totally, except that the one kind of like caveat I would add to that is... This idea that the Democrats are kind of the more dovish party and the Republicans are the more hawkish party, I think it's something that we probably believe, especially those of us who paid like started paying close attention to politics after 9-11, right? Because like it was Bush and Cheney doing Afghanistan, doing Iraq, doing torture, doing rendition, all those like neocons, although the Democrats went along with it, in large part, they were at least like dragging their feet on some of it, and they were like liberals whining about it. So this kind of idea got presented, oh, like if at least the liberals are like a little bit more dovish and the Republicans are a little more hawkish. The reality is totally different. In 2000, prior to 9-11, George W. Bush ran against Al Gore and his critique of the Clinton-Gore foreign policy was that they were too interventionist. Like in Kosovo, trying to change the world. Remember, it was like, we need a more humble foreign policy. We can't go around throwing our weight around. That was George W. Bush's critique. Uh, and it came from things like, you know, Colin Powell being shocked when Madeleine Albright, you know, said to Colin Powell when he was like, why should we intervene in Yugoslavia? And she's like, what's the point of having all this expensive weaponry if we're not going to use it? And he was like, mm -hmm. you're ready to just send people to fucking die on this whim. Yeah. And that was Colin so, Powell before, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> that was like the pre 9-11 Colin Powell. Um, but, you know, after the like hysteria of, of, 9-11 died down, like, let's say, by the end of the the Bush, the second Bush term, you already saw, you know, in, like, 2008 and 2012, Ron Paul had a lot of success when he ran for president as a Republican, going into really deep red places like mm. Iowa and South Carolina and articulating a non-interventionist isolationist foreign policy. He was a Ron Paul was one of the most vehement opponents of the Iraq war in 2002 and 2003. Um, Pat Buchanan, that, there was like that strain of kind of like uber national that I think is where Trump comes from to the extent he yeah. has a cogent foreign policy. Um, and so there was already this, that's why neocons, you can go back to like 2014 and there's a lot of articles that say like that neocons are going to start to migrate back to the Democratic Party, especially if Hillary wins. Mm. And there were already neocon signing up um like victoria Nyland, the wife of, of of robert kagan and then robert kagan himself because they started to realize that there was this kind of isolationist um sort of lindbergian strain in the republican yeah. party growing already that trump normalized in his mm. like trumpian style mm -hmm. um whereas you know if you look at 
who favors things like the war in Libya and regime change operations, all the people that are about to be empowered if Biden wins, like Ben Rhodes and Susan Rice and Samantha Power, those are the ones who are like, they were, in retrospect, Obama was kind of a constraint on those warmongers. Mm-hmm. You know, like they were pushing him to do more to, to topple Assad. They wanted to arm Ukrainians with lethal weapons. And it was Obama saying, who was really more like a Brent Scowcroft kind of realist figure, you know, no. So, you know, I do think it's a, an open question whether their chances for new wars over the next four years are higher with the Biden administration or a Trump administration. And I know it's heretical to say that because we're supposed to treat Trump like Hitler and yeah. say, you know, just accept that there's going to be like Dachau and Auschwitz in the United States if he wins a second term. But, it, you know, I don't think that's true. And I also don't think that we ought to lie, even if we think the Biden is the preferable alternative on the whole, about what a Biden foreign policy is likely to look like. Exactly. And I think the DNC was probably one of the best representations of this really rightward, like disturbing to me, rightward shift, like on display. You know, I mean, Colin Powell was there. Uh, You're rehabilitating people like, I mean, Michael Bloomberg was in, ran in the Democratic primary as a Democrat, right? And um, just this kind of migration of never Trumpers and so-called moderate conservatives, or I guess, I don't even know if I can call them moderate conservatives. It just seems that they're more disgusted with Trump's outward grotesqueness than his actual policies, you know, because they agree with the policies. They just don't like the way it's being handled. And they're positive and confident that Joe Biden will carry out, you know, similar pro-corporate, you know, pro-imperial policies, but it'll just have a nice face on it. Right. Couldn't agree. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'll tell you this really fascinating thing that a lot of people didn't though a lot of people have forgotten. I think the like the first time one of the first times I ever wrote about WikiLeaks was back in 2008, in the summer of 2008, by which point Obama and McCain were the nominees. And there was a what's called like a red cell memo that I I don't remember now if it came from the Pentagon or the CIA. It was one or the other. And it was a memo, these red cell memos identify potential problems and what the solutions are. This is a really fascinating document because it gives so much insight into how everything works. The concern that they were identifying was that there was an anti-war sentiment growing throughout Western Europe. There had been several parties that had deployed troops to Afghanistan, I think in Holland and in Spain and a couple of others, which lost to anti-war parties. And the CIA or the Pentagon, that world, was very concerned that this anti-war sentiment was spreading throughout Western Europe and it was going to leave the U.S. alone to fight the war on terror in general and the war in Afghanistan in particular. Mm. And what they said was the best option by far to stymie this trend and to reverse it is for Barack Obama to win and become president. Because one of the main reasons why Western Europeans were turning against the war in terror and turning against the war in Afghanistan because it was because the face of it was George Bush, this sort of smug, mm-hmm. evangelical, primitive Texan that was really <laughs> anathema to like, you know, the halls liberal of sensibilities, power. aesthetics. Yeah. 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 And like Brussels and Paris and Berlin <laughs> and London. Whereas Obama would also continue the war in Afghanistan. He was very clear about that. But, but he's he would the hate young like, black guy. 
Exactly. Remember when he went to Berlin during the campaign and he had like 150,000 like screaming, swooning, like he was the Beatles. And they knew that like if you just put Obama's pretty cool cosmopolitan face on these wars, you would completely convert Western Europeans back into war supporters, which worked. It was very prescient. It's the same. That's why the anti-war movement disappeared in the U.S. as soon as Obama won. And that, you're exactly right. Part of the reason why never Trumpers hate Trump is because they all lost their gigs, right? Because, like, he didn't rely on that whole, like, D.C. sleaze of K Street, and he just brought in, like, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump instead of Steve, Steve Schmidt and Rick Wilson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also, the bigger reason is what you just said, which is that, like, the more serious ones are upset that the face of Trump, he doesn't know how to prettify the really ugly hegemonic mm -hmm. imperialism of the U S the way that most presidents just learn how to do. Yeah. Um, it's stylistic. I, it is stylistic. And I think, uh, of course, Kamala Harris's, um, you know, nomination as VP is wrapped up in all of that. I mean, even though her record as a prosecutor was terrible, but it's an aesthetic thing, right? It, it, it's what makes people kind of say, like, okay, it's fine. Like, you know, we've elected, these are the people that we've elected, the representative, of course, Obama, black guy, of course, Kamala Harris as a black woman, right, is going to be progressive and supportive of uh, policies that benefit, like, people who look like her, right? Where, I mean, that, I think, is what dilutes any sort of... um movement on the left, right? It depresses it. I'm hoping we don't see that again, but I mean, who fucking knows, right? You know, I was taken in by Obama in 2008 because like Same. Obama is super fucking smart and he's yeah. like very cool and he's like very, you know, like skillful and dissecting. He's like, he, he, the kind of hang out with him. Yeah, you would, yeah. And like as somebody who grew up, you know, I didn't grow, I grew up like, in a working class shit shitty like suburb in, in South Florida. But like, then I ultimately went to college in Washington and law school in New York, lived in Manhattan. My friends were like cosmopolitan East coast liberals. So for me, like Obama was like the G spot, you know, mm. like Harvard mm. law school, <laughs> you know, like law review, super steeped in like complex nuanced thought, like the incredible <laughs> ability to, to express it, you know? So, and like, of course, like the historic, nature of the victory which i still like i'm kind of moved by like i remember the first time watching you know obama and michelle and like their two daughters walk into the yeah. white house like I you cried. couldn't be yeah yeah i mean yeah. even knowing like it's bullshit like in substance <laughs> in sure. reality it's also important and they play on that like right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um you know and same with kamala like as a lawyer, I watched her like in the Senate Judiciary. She's fucking great. Like she's really good at questioning people and interrogating people. She's really smart. She's really skilled. But like, I have to remind myself, you know, when I see all these people, it's like a reality show. You know, Americans are trained to think about politics that way. Like, I don't know if you've seen like the last two weeks, like especially on gay Twitter, mm -hmm. which maybe I just pay attention to more than like other people but like so maybe more than not. left twitter at least i probably should too honestly. yeah they're yeah. super like, they're so fucking over the moon about these fucking sneakers that she's wearing i don't get what the sneakers oh, like the are the you mean? yeah the conference oh, <laughs> which is so not her you like she looks like she should be in like an etna board meeting and like yeah you know yeah. like prada pumps and not in sneakers it's totally artificial but this well, she's is the, the cool aunt, right what's that she's the cool aunt 
Yeah, I mean that's what they're. But she's not though. But like that's what they're trying to turn. Her into. Oh god. Yeah, it's um. I, I mean, I have a personal beef with that because my family's from Jamaica, um, and you know she's half Jamaican, and it just my mom and sister adore her, and it just like especially being like a young black guy, right, trying to talk to two Jamaican women about why Kamala Harris is shit. It's something that I don't, you know, I don't recommend anybody do. You know, it's not a, it's not an easy conversation. But um, Glenn, I wanted to jump to something else that you wrote recently to kind of jump back to the media. Um, you wrote an article um, in The Intercept called uh, Journalism's New Propaganda Tool, using, quote, confirmed to mean its opposite. And I found that um, another take that I could see people being upset with. I mean, I wasn't. Right. But essentially what you said was that um, and you're drawing back on CNN's um, erroneous claim that Trump Jr. had advanced access to the WikiLeaks DNC emails. Um, And what you say is that the media abuses the word confirmed to mean the exact opposite. More recently, we saw this with the Jeffrey Goldberg, um, the editor in chief of The Atlantic, who's saying that uh, we have confirmed sources that Trump called the generals, um, you know, suckers and losers and on the one hand, yeah, like, I totally believe that he said it, right? But the use of the word confirmed, why, why, is that, why is that such an issue, even if it's a claim that we can all, like, generally agree is probably true? I think it's really important that each institution performs the role that it ought to play in order for democracy to function in a healthy way. I remember I gave this Vox interview in 2016 when they, like a lot of liberals started really getting upset with me for the first time because I was being very critical of Hillary. And they were asking me like, God, with Trump looming, why are you like using so much of your platform to highlight Hillary's flaws? And I was explaining to them, like, it's very important for me if I want to be a journalist to actually be a journalist. Like if I wanted to go help Hillary win, I would go work for the DNC. Mm. It's not like, I think that, you know, it's just like a kind of coy, cute insult for journalists who are partisans. I think it's really important. And the example I always use is, let's assume that, you know, in like 1933 or 34, Adolf Hitler has a heart attack and he goes to the emergency room and there's like an attending physician there who knows what Hitler's politics are. And has to decide, do I do everything possible to save Adolf Hitler and to like prevent him from dying of a of a of a of a of a of a heart attack? Or do I kind of just, you know, let nature take its course? You don't want physicians <laughs> yeah. making those determinations about who's good and who's bad, because that's not the role of a physician. And if doctors start exceeding their role and assuming things for themselves, given the power that they have, right? They have like licenses to do things to people that other people can't. <clears throat> it 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 could lead to like pretty dystopic you know dystopic um situations so as a journalist i like if you're an activist and you're working against trump's um reelection by all means like throw you know no limits say whatever you want mock is like you know mock him for being confused or whatever you think is you know going to work post. but if you're a journalist yeah if you're a journalist like you have to maintain journalist integri- journalistic integrity because if you don't, you're going to ruin journalism forever. You're going to destroy confidence and faith in journalism. And they know what they're doing. 
They know like when Jeffrey Goldberg comes and says four sources told me this and then AP and the Washington Post say we've confirmed it. They know they haven't confirmed anything. They know that the same people who spoke to Jeffrey Goldberg just went and told those other people. That's not confirmation. That's just hearing the same sources make the same unverified claims. And they're doing it on purpose to give this appearance to the public that these claims have been vetted and verified by multiple different media outlets when it's just not true. So when journalists start deceiving the public as opposed to informing the public, that's something that I'm going to raise my voice about because I think it's very dangerous. Yeah, yeah. No, I do too. And I think that what I think that people um, just naturally ease into their bias and they're not able to see something for what it is. And I don't have to, you know, I don't have to agree, as you were saying earlier, I don't have to agree with the way the guy does something right. Not just Trump, but any president. Right. But the outcome. You say that conflating the crucial journalistic concept of confirmation with hearing the same idle gossip or unproven assertions is a huge disservice. It is an instrument of propaganda, not reporting. And I think that it doesn't matter if he says something that if you don't like what he says and it's true or it doesn't matter if you have this creeping suspicion that it may be, it's your job to actually report on the facts, right? Or at the very least to present the evidence. Right. I mean, Everybody should want anybody who says they're a journalist to be doing exactly that and nothing else. And this is, I think, one of the, the things that sometimes people, even who are kind of longtime supporters of my work, people who look favorably on some of the stuff that I do, who get angry at me, have trouble understanding, like, is, is the role that I'm trying to play in our politics and discourse, which is, in general, I think that human orthodoxies and human pieties and mob consensus is very dangerous because it's so often wrong. Mm. It's very difficult to challenge it or question it precisely because the most powerful people are demanding that you assent to it. That's what it means to have a mainstream consensus. There's punishment and sanction and scorn or worse from dissenting from it or questioning it or challenging it. I obviously I've lived in New York, you know, for I lived in New York before I moved to Brazil uh, for almost 15 years. I know exactly who Donald Trump is. I knew who Donald Trump was long before he ran for president. I know Donald Trump is a person completely bereft of any redeeming human qualities um, and that he's a serial liar. I actually once sued him on behalf mm. of clients and litigation before. So I could if I. It was, I don't know, it was a, it was a really stupid case. Um, he actually ended up getting dismissed. We ended up collecting judgments against his business associates. I think I might have just named him just to add the pressure. He wasn't really central to it. Um, but I'm just saying, like, I know exactly who Donald Trump is, right? Like, I was, I was um, either in New York or about to come to New York when he took out the ad urging that the five African-Americans in Central Park be given the death penalty, even though they weren't guilty. Um, I'm under no illusions about who he is. So I could, if I wanted to, just go on Twitter every day, right? Go to my column, go to my article and be like, Donald Trump, you know, Trump is an orange Cheeto fascist. And he lied <laughs> yeah. about this and he lied about this. And just sound like everybody else. And sure. it would probably be good for my career. You know, like I bet you my Twitter follower, which count would be 3 million instead of a million and a half. <laughs> I'd probably be on MSNBC all the time. All of those things I could write to like, you know, Trump is threatening the Republic. I don't want to do that because I don't think it has value for me to just go and echo what everyone else is saying, which doesn't mean... I purposely say the opposite of a consensus because I don't think that's valuable either. But what I do try and do with my platform is question and subject consensus to critical scrutiny, which mm. I think is really valuable, much more so than my just joining in the choir. 
Um, and again, I don't do it just to do it. I don't do it if I really mean it. But I do think that a lot of the opposition to Trump has become very deranged. It's often militaristic and jingoistic, as you were alluding to earlier, with the influence of never Trump neocons and militarists. It's often done from the right, you know, accusing them of being a Kremlin pawn, of being a loyalist, of hating the troops, all common tropes that have been used against the left forever. That's very nationalistic and very sort of uber patriotic. Um, but especially the recklessness of these institutions and sort of saying we're going to throw all guidelines and ethical limits to the wind in order to achieve the objective that we want um, is one that I think is very toxic. Once Trump is gone, we're all going to have to live with these institutions. And exactly. um, I think they're worth, you know, trying to to critique. Exactly. I mean, you know, as we were saying earlier, what Trump was able to do with the espionage act, that art, that framework already existed under Obama and was exploited by Obama, right? It doesn't really, I think, I try to tell people that, well, Libs at least, or my family members, right, who may not be thinking about these things so nuanced, I'm saying to them, you know, these institutions and powers exist and it doesn't matter who it is that's in charge of them, right? They can be, you know, misused and abused and, you know, people have to be vigilant about that. Um, and I want to, I guess on that note, I kind of want to, end off and talk about your own work in Brazil, um, because you, um, last, earlier this year, actually, um, you were, I don't, I don't know how to put this, I guess you were in some danger. I mean, those of us that really um, enjoy your work and um, like what you do, me personally, was kind of worried about you because I know that, uh, you know, Brazilian federal prosecutors were filing a criminal complaint for cybercrime against you. Um, and could, could you talk a little bit about that and how and the work that you did um, in uncovering, you know, the anti-corruption campaign known as Operation Car Wash that eventually sent Lula to prison and um, gave rise to Bolsonaro? Yeah, I mean, so just, you know, in terms of the context, um, you know, my husband, um, who is a member of Congress with the Socialist Party um, called PSOL, he and I have been enemies of the Bolsonaro family for years, like before Bolsonaro even got near the presidency. Bolsonaro has called me a fat, called me a faggot on Twitter, mm. I think in 2016 or 2017. Um, I wrote about Bolsonaro as far back as like 2014 or 2015, and uh, my, my husband interviewed him for the article. So we've been, you know, on their radar for a long time. Um, and political violence in Brazil has become very real um more so than it, it always has been but you know it's a country that just got a military dictatorship in 1985 um but in you know the kind of formative event for us was in 2018 um at the time i has in tw 2018 my husband was on the city council this was before he got elected to congress um and this woman that he served with in his party marielle franco who is a black woman like my husband lgbt from the favelas like my husband had her head blown off um, on March 14, 2018, and a political assassination by a militia that was linked to the Bolsonaro family. One of the most horrifying traumatic events, you know, our family has ever experienced. I'm sorry. And so this has been the, you know, she was like an amazing human rights activist. Um, really, like she was 38 and she had this incredible future, which is why they killed her. Mm. So, you know, we've been like, we've had security, armed security, because my, my husband served like right next to her and was her you know best friend and primary ally. So when my husband entered Congress as well, it was because the only other LGBT member of Congress fled Brazil under death threats from the Bolsonaro movement. My husband took his place. So 
even that was very dramatic. And my husband started having security all the time, armed security for whenever he left, assigned to him by the Congress because of the death threats we were getting. So when we started this reporting in, in, in June of 2019, the primary target of which was Bolsonaro's justice minister, who was at the, who had previously been the judge who put Lula in prison at the time that Lula was leading in all public opinion polls to be elected one for his third term. As president, it was Bolsonaro's primary obstacle to the presidency, and this judge, this right-wing judge, convicted Lula. We got this immense archive that showed that that prosecution, but also a lot of the work this judge had done with these prosecutors, was deeply corrupt. And by this point, this judge was now the justice minister of Bolsonaro's government, kind of the attorney general. Um, he got rewarded for having done that. And so our exposés were proving we got the private telephone conversations of this judge with all the prosecutors, all kinds of illegalities and improprieties and cheating that they did, not just in Lula's case, but in a whole bunch of others. So we spent all of 2019, my husband and I, as like the primary enemies of the Bolsonaro family, all kinds of death threats, all, you know, Bolsonaro repeatedly threatened us with prison, with me with prison in particular. Um, and then it was a surprise because in early January of this year, the federal police had conducted this comprehensive investigation of how these phones were hacked and concluded, even though they were looking because they reported to the justice minister, who was the main target of our uh, exposés, that I had no participation in any crimes, that I had never crossed any line of criminality, that I was extremely careful. So we assumed that that would be the end of it because the federal police published this report in December. But then in January, this like fanatical pro-Bolsonaro prosecutor indicted my alleged sources, the six people who were part of the hacking ring, and included me in the indictment, charging me with like 318 felonies that would put me to send me to prison for like 215 and, and years. This is, this is this is after the federal police already had conducted their investigation. And and I think they said, uh, I think it's quote, you exercise the highest level of professionalism, caution, and responsibility. So this judge comes in after this prosecutor, sorry, and decides to press charges. Exactly. Which hmm. you know is unheard of, right? If it would be like if the it would be like if the FBI conducted a uh, an investigation and then Jim Comey said, We're concluding the investigation, we found no wrongdoing against this person. But then William Barr, whoever the attorney general is, says we're gonna indict him anyway. That's basically yeah, what like, happened. Like, it was obviously <laughs> so political. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the yeah, and like the theory that they used, you know, because they admitted that by the time my sources came to me, all the hacking had been done. So I obviously didn't participate in the hack. The theory that they use is the exact same one the Trump administration is using to try and prosecute Julian Assange, mm -hmm. which is that at one point my source said to me, hey, you know, I'm just wondering these chats that you and I are having, should I keep them? Should I delete them? And I responded and said, look, I can't give you any advice. But I do want you to know that we're obviously keeping records of all the chats that you and I are having to make sure that nobody can lie about what we said. So I don't really see any reason for you to keep them. If you want to, you can. But there's no reason for you to because we have all the copies. And the theory was when I said that to him, I was encouraging him to destroy evidence yeah. to help him evade detection. And when I did that, I became part of the conspiracy. The judge who did dismiss the indictment only did so, he said, because there was a Supreme Court ruling from the prior year when Bolsonaro was threatening to investigate me and when Moro, when the justice minister had, when there was leaks that they were investigating my finances, the Supreme Court barred the Bolsonaro government from investigating me in connection with the journalism on the grounds that it would be retaliatory and a violation of the freedom of freedom of the press. And the judge in the case said, look, I actually think 
Glenn Greenwald committed crimes here, or at least there's a basis for believing that he did. Unfortunately, I'm compelled by the Supreme Court ruling to throw out the indictment. Um, and now the Bolsonaro government is appealing that. They're appealing the dismissal of that indictment against me. So they're still trying to prosecute me um, for the reporting that we did. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, like, it's why I don't have a lot of patience for or concern about, you know, kind of like online liberals or leftists claiming that I'm like a fascist sympathizer or whatever, because I yeah. know what my family has done, not just in this, this case, but also in the Snowden one to actually confront real power um, at great risk. And so it's easy to kind of like LARP on Twitter as a exactly. fascist opponent. But I exactly. think that what you do in your life is actually a more significant metric. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've trying to been, I've been trying to, trying to keep this like interview under wraps. I've been talking about it with anybody, but I posted something today and someone um, immediately thought that I was talking about you. And, um, and this was today. And I had to be like, yo, this man has like risked his life to publish state secrets. Like, what the fuck have you done? And I'm not, you know, I'm not out there like shaming people, but I just think it's all, it's just what you faced and what you've actually had to deal with, the things that people just kind of theorize and talk about and kind of LARP on, you know what I mean? I mean, it's it's not a joke, right? It's not a joke at all. Um, and I wanted to add too, what, what, what's crazy is that this prosecutor, didn't he bring charges before to the head of the Brazilian Bar Association for criticizing this justice minister and minister, and that was unsuccessful as well. Exactly. They, I mean, just gives you a sense of who this prosecutor is, but he's very high level, this prosecutor. Like, most of them can't bring indictments on their own like this. Yeah, like two months prior to indicting me, he filed criminal charges against, exactly as you said, the head of the Brazilian Bar Association, um, who obviously is an opponent of Moro and who is criticizing Moro based on a reporting saying, what Morrow did in these cases was unethical, was criminal. This prosecutor charged him with criminal defamation, which is a thing in Brazil, that you can defame somebody to such an extent with such deliberateness that it becomes a crime. Um, and I mean, it was such a profound attack on basic civil liberties that the head of the mm -hmm. Bar Association can't criticize the justice minister without being prosecuted. And the court also threw out that indictment. And then that prosecutor also is now appealing that as well. So he's appealing the dismissal of the indictment against the head of the Bar Association and the dismissal of the indictment against me as well. But yeah, it, the, the Bolsonaro government doesn't believe in democracy. They don't believe in free speech and they don't believe in a free press. And they've never hidden that. They're not coy about that. They're very explicit about it. They want to put me in prison very, very badly. And they've said, Bolsonaro himself has said that repeatedly, that he thinks I belong in prison. Um, so, you know, I think that we're on decent footing, but I thought that as well when the federal police concluded their investigation. So, you know, I'm not taking anything for granted anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, Glenn, um, stay safe, man. Please do. I mean, I, you know, all of us, well, who appreciate your work, um, we look forward to you doing more of that work. Is there anything now that you're working on any books or maybe any projects? I'm actually, um, yeah, I'm actually finishing up a book about my experience and having done this Brazil reporting. Um, it's interesting. I was working, the, I was working on a book prior to the whole thing happening about how the war on terror is being imported into the United States now that there's no more ISIS and Al-Qaeda that excite us. Mm. And that's why the police are being paramilitarized and there's tanks on the streets. And obviously mm. 2020 proved to be the perfect test case of that. So I'm going to write that book once I'm done with this Brazil book. But yeah, I'm finishing up my book now on yeah. my experience here in Brazil. Yeah. I, um, I've read, I've read once this quote, I think it said something like, um, fascism is imperialism brought home. 
right? That kind of idea, right? And and we're totally seeing this now with the militarization of the police. I mean, even with the, the sort of screech skirmishes that we've been seeing in places like Portland. So, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> the future looks a little bleak, you know? It looks a lot bleak. Um, no, that, it's, that, that's a fan, I haven't heard that quote before, but it's fantastic and it's so true. And it's like, if you look at histories of empires, that's typically what happens is they first extend their oppressive, tyrannical force outward, supposedly for the benefit of their citizenry, citizenry through conquest and the like. And then as they start crumbling, it all gets directed inward so that they can maintain control and order internally. And that's clearly the point in the cycle that we're at. Yeah, yeah. Well, Glenn, thank you so much, man, for talking to me. Um, like, I really appreciate you taking the time out to just kind of go over some things that you probably talked a lot about with other people. But, you know, I appreciate it. I really do. No, I really, it was a great conversation. I genuinely enjoyed it. Um, good luck with the podcast. Happy to help however I can. Um, and it was great meeting you and great talking to you.